Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we just wanted to do something that would make people happy. We're going to be talking about the Criterion Collection. You know, this is episode 74, but I guess you could say it's kind of like spine number (laughs) 74. (laughs) So the Criterion Collection, you know what that is. It's the DVD label that releases all the important films in amazing special editions that cost a lot of money. It's the one where you go to the store and you look at the box and you say, boy, that sure looks nice. Then you put it back because you can't afford it. (laughs) Because it's $75 or something like that. And that you always see people in used bookstores and stuff like that that sell DVDs, they always go to that right away. But it's always the same movies. It's always uh, Monsoon Wedding and a couple of other ones. Days and Confused, the DVD edition. Stuff, uh, some things that nobody wants. So when did you become aware of the Criterion Collection? When I was a kid, yes, a kid, like seven, eight years old, my local library had a CD-ROM called Criterion Goes to the Movies, which was all about their Laserdisc releases. The box of it had you know a picture of orson welles and citizen kane and uh you could scroll through it and you can watch little cd-rom clips of scenes from the movies like you could see robert de niro um in a very pixelated form go you talking to me Uh, and I guess there was also information about, you know, what the special features were and stuff like that. All that stuff was totally unattainable to me as a child because most video stores didn't stock Criterions because no, they were expensive. No, they're so expensive. I remember once going to a video store and wanting to rent hard-boiled on uh, the Criterion DVD release because it has a commentary track with Roger Avery, the man who co-wrote Pulp Fiction that's mm-hmm. nowhere else. And the guy's like, oh yeah, you'll have to put a $100 deposit down. And yeah. I'm like, I don't even have $100. But I remember like in 2005, uh, I went to, I used to bike to this video store, uh, Roger's Video, perhaps you remember <laughs> it, where they had a modest foreign and classic section that had, I don't know, like 20 Criterions in it. So like I sort of spent that summer getting acquainted with uh, the classics of European art cinema. Wild <laughs> wild strawberries. Wait, how uh, old are you at this point? I was 16. And you had like a pipe and a monocle while you watched them? I fancied myself a bit of a cinephile. I mean, I wasn't... <laughs> oh, lo- I'm sorry, madame. I cannot go out tonight. I'm going to be watching Last Year at Marion Bad. I mean, unlike you, I was an intellectually ambitious teenager. <laughs> No, it was more about, like, skateboards and pogs and stuff yeah, like you, that. Yeah, you like to watch, uh, I, I don't know, you just watched Evil Dead 2 over and over and over and over <laughs> Absolutely. again. Absolutely. And nothing else. Waiting for Criterion to put it on sale. I'm like, listen, it's had a million DVD releases. Why not Criterion? Well, when did you become aware of? One filmmaker made me aware of Criterion, and that filmmaker was Terry Gilliam. <laughs> I'm like, I'm never going to afford that Chasing Amy special edition. (laughs) Okay, sorry, that's the one that you see used all the time, Chasing Amy. (laughs) But it was Terry Gilliam, and specifically the Brazil box set, which was, for me, basically like... The best... DVD box set ever, perhaps? Yeah, but it was so unattainable. Mm-hmm. Like, I was never going to get it. Because it went for $75, $80. Yeah. It's like a three-disc special edition that has the Love Conquers All version that the studio mandated a so, cut of. Well, that box set is so great because it really is kind of like... You know, Film school in a box. Yeah, because you got the movie. Then you've got a documentary called The Battle of Brazil, which is all about how the studio demanded that he cut it down and put on a happy ending and everything. It's got his commentary. And then it's got a third disc that has the Love Conquers All version, which was the version the studio cut together. But never released. Never released. But it, but that version, too, has a commentary track mm-hmm. on it. I've By the guy actually, who wrote the Battle of Brazil book. Right. I've never actually watched that version, because why would you? It's insane. And you should. And yeah. it's really short, actually. So. Okay. 
it's an easy watch. And it was Terry Gilliam that Criterion started putting out like a bunch of his movies. Uh, Time Bandits in an earlier DVD form was uh, released by Criterion. And I think the first one I probably ever bought because it was readily available was Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Mm. And I remember Will a few days ago went, do you own Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas? And I went, yeah. He's like, yeah, me too. Well, it's because, of course, because Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is one of those movies, especially kind of like when you're in your late teens, that you think, boy, I really ought to like this because it's it's Gilliam. He's one of those like big auteur dudes. Uh, and it's Hunter S. Thompson. That's a book I've read, uh, <laughs> Fear and Loathing. Like, teenagers read that. And, and then you watch got- it and you go, yeah, this is like Terry Gilliam. And then 30 minutes go by and you start to be like, geez, this is, this is a bit of a tough set. <laughs> And yep. then by the end of the two-hour runtime, you're like, holy shit. And I've heard Terry Gilliam talk about it and say he wanted it to feel like a drug trip that starts good and ends bad, and he succeeded mission in that accomplished. mission. Any 10 minutes of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is great, but mm. when you put all those 10 minutes together, whoo, man. But good DVD set. Yeah, very good DVD set. It has set. a useless commentary track by Hunter S. Thompson himself. Which well, is... useless as in that there's not much information provided. And it's not entertaining. It's, <laughs> well, I don't know about that. It's just him kind of mumbling throughout. And screaming every now and then. <laughs> yeah. But... What a sad caricature of himself that man became. <laughs> <laughs> just like Johnny Depp. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, I th- Criterion was always out of my reach, and I can't even specify a point where I started buying them with regularity, because that never <laughs> <laughs> I was never at a financial place in my life where I could go out to the store and go, mm, I wonder what Criterion released this week. Oh, I, this one looks interesting. It's always a big event for me. Well, I'm in a better financial position than Justin is, so I have uh, bought some at full price, uh, and I've bought a fair number of them used. So let's talk about the history of Criterion. Um, it's really not that interesting. It's a company. It's yeah. a brand. But but I guess one thing that's interesting about them is, you told me this, they're the company that... Uh, invented letterboxing basically. yes they did and they invented the commentary track they did and that uh first commentary track appeared on king kong and you can find it on the internet um the commentator at the beginning goes listen we've never really done this before but we're gonna try to talk a little bit about the movie while it's playing and like a lot of the early commentary tracks it's mostly an essay being read on screen like the actual reacting to the movie would come much later on i understand they tried to persuade orson welles to do a commentary on Citizen Kane at the time. And uh, he said, no, I don't want to talk about Citizen Kane anymore. Instead, you should get my best pal, Peter Bogdanovich. <laughs> Just to go a little bit more in detail, though, uh, Criterion started with a company called Janus Films, which was founded by Cyrus Harvey and Brian Halliday. They were a distributor that would take foreign films and release them in America, mostly through their um, a theater that they ran. At the same time, a company in 1984 was created by three people at... Robert Stein, Aline Stein, and Joe Majuk, and they did laser discs. Well, as the uh, slogan is, a continuing series of important classic and contemporary films, which means they've had a lot of leeway to put in some garbage, <laughs> such as Armageddon. And so, what ended up happening was Janus Films and Criterion got together to do a CD-ROM company called um, Voyager. Yeah, Voyager. And once that folded, Janus Films bought Criterion, and they've just been working hand-in-hand ever since. And one of the things that really defined Criterion, which we mentioned at the beginning, is that once they started releasing DVDs, what they started to do was uh, spine numbers. Mm-hmm. And spine numbers are the worst thing ever. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think they're the reason more than anything, more even than the lovely colored cover design, why Criterion has the status. Because Criterion, it's the only 
company that aspires to be the canon. Yes. Uh, and it's exclusionary by nature. Mm-hmm. Like it's ultimately it's a conservative company because, you know, it, it, well, it's going to release films that have already been critically lauded. Yeah. Or have a kind of history of importance. So like when John Waters gets into the collection with Multiple Maniacs, I mean, Multiple Maniacs seems like an adventurous choice, but let's face it, John Waters is an American institution at this point. It's it's not that creative to put John Waters in the collection. So what you're trying to say is that the Criterion Collection will only release films that have already been kind of absorbed by popular consciousness? Yeah, and every time they announce a new slate of releases, you'll see people on Twitter who are like, yeah, you know, Moonrise Kingdom is in the collection or something, or Being John Malkovich. Sometimes I see it and I think, well, why do you care? Like, you know, Being John Malkovich is is readily available. But what it is, is it's this kind of validation for their taste that the movie they like is now officially this oracle, the Criterion Collection is saying, being John Malkovich can stand on par with the Seventh Seal and yeah. other other canonical classics. I understand when Criterion like does new special features or they do a new transfer or something like that, or even films that have not been released on Blu-ray readily. Like um, they did Mulholland Drive, which I believe hadn't been released on Blu-ray before in North America. But at the same time, it's a lot of the same special features that were on the DVD. But people like are jumping out of their seats it's so important that Mohan Drive is now a criterion. Because so. that means it's an official classic. It's yes. part of the canon. But back to the spy number thing, what I think that also leads to is a lot of collectors feeling they need everything. I think you were the one that said that if you walked into someone's house and they had all the Criterion releases, you would think something is wrong with them. Does any, I don't think anybody has them all. Well, I'm sure there are some who have them But all, they're probably but... like very wealthy people, yeah, right? And yeah. if they're not, you would probably wonder like, is there something wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's obsessive compulsive <laughs> yeah. behavior to, to get them all. But Criterion with the spine numbers have done a good job cultivating the idea that that their products are little fetish objects and that their pro- products are kind of like these secular holy, holy objects. They do things like on their YouTube channel, those Criterion Closet Love those videos. videos. Ugh, I find them so annoying. Well, I, I like those Criterion Closet videos because what it allows us to do is to see like a filmmaker talk about the movies that inspired him. Okay, listen, I, you know what gets me about him? It's like, you know, Bill Hader, like, doesn't need a free copy of, I don't know, <laughs> okay. Bicycle Thieves. So what you're saying is that these people that already have privilege are getting free stuff. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I, I can get your back yeah, behind yeah, that. Yeah. Why don't we talk about some of the movies that we watched uh, for this week? Because we wanted to do a, well, it's not even really a representative sample, but mm-hmm. we picked movies for, for specific reasons. And why don't we start with tiny furniture <laughs> you want to go with the fun one right off the top Why not? lena dunham's uh, breakthrough project tiny mm-hmm. furniture and the reason we picked this one uh is twofold because we wanted to do one that didn't belong in the collection but that wasn't armageddon and chasing amy yeah because that's the one that people always go to yeah and the other reason is because this came out of an alliance that criterion had with ifc films mm-hmm. uh, as a distributor of modern films and because of that alliance certain movies got in the collection like Antichrist and a certified copy and Joya Noel, I think. Yes, is what, that's right. Yeah, it's called C- certain other ones that, you know, our movies of varying quality. Like I think certified copy is a, a wonderful movie. I mean, Joya Noel is very good too. Yeah, but but it's like they're, they're movies that hadn't that kind of jumped ahead in line to yeah. be part of this canon. Because yeah, like Francis Ha is released on the Criterion Collection. Because what's important to remember is that Criterion is not holy; it is a business, mm-hmm. uh, and this was a calculated decision because this can give them money for. 
you know, sales for this stuff can give them money for other stuff. Yeah, like their clips box sets that they used to release. Yeah, so uh, Tiny Furniture, which I think is, I don't know, what, what, what did you think of this? So I remember when Girls came out and all the articles were being written on it, that Lena Dunham was like a voice of her generation and all that stuff. And I watched the first two episodes of Girls and I went, okay, I'm going to go check out the film that she made because her the film was obviously good enough to lead to this deal with HBO to make a series. And also Tiny Furniture seemed like an extension of that mumblecore thing that was going on at the time, these New York independent. Mm -hmm. Is it okay to say mumblecore or is that just marketing buzzspeak? And I watched maybe 15 minutes of Tiny Furniture at the time. (laughs) And when I mentioned to my partner, Emily, that I was doing this podcast on Tiny Furniture, she went, ugh. And I went, oh, did you see it? She's like, nah, I just watched 30 minutes, (laughs) which seems to be kind of a universal feeling with a lot of people that have seen the film. But I watched it for this podcast. I sat down. It's on Netflix. And it actually said that I quit at nine minutes. (laughs) Like it reminded me. Went back to the beginning and watched it. So Lena Dunham stars as an aspiring filmmaker who's just graduated from grad school, I think, and Mm -hmm. is now back living with her mother and her sister. Played by her real life mother and sister. At uh, her mother's palatial um, Soho loft. Yeah. Where where her mother, who's in real life a very successful artist, and also in the movie plays a very successful artist. And uh, the the movie is kind of attempting to evoke this, I hesitate to say universal, but this common feeling yeah. of directionlessness after graduating college. So this film falls into a genre that I've spoken about before, which I don't like. And that is the distressed rich person. Mm-hmm. Uh, Noah Baumbach's Kicking and Screaming, a film that I enjoy, also falls into that kind of subgenre. The works of uh, Wilt Stillman also fall. Woody Allen. Yeah, exactly. And Woody Allen. This movie has a character repeatedly reading a Woody Allen book as if to announce that it's part of this lineage. And I think that I don't know why Tiny Furniture gets on my nerves more than those ones. Maybe because there's distance from those films. Um, I- I've been thinking about it a lot, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Lena Dunham is many things, but she's not known for her self-awareness. So, like, like you see this, like, beautiful apartment, and it's shot like it's a Michael Haneke film with these medium shots that are static which I don't think suit the material because it makes everything look so beautiful. And we're supposed to be in this headspace of like anxiety mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and not knowing how life is going to turn out. But th- the way she shoots, it just makes it look like a privileged existence. There's something in, in Lena Dunham's work and the way that the people who like it respond to it, where I often hear people talk about how, Oh, this is like my experience. Yeah. That's how people, I remember uh, seeing a review on Letterboxd that said, this is like a spiritual documentary of my life. Which, you know, if you don't come from the exact same socioeconomic background she does, can seem a little bewildering. I mean, look, I come from a certain amount of privilege. I come from, you know, what used to be called the middle class. Yeah, I, but, prob- I but come now, from the middle class. But now well. is probably the upper middle class. Mm. And I also went to uh, a fancy grad school and came back to a few months of... I went to college. ...depressing <laughs> unemployment afterwards. So I feel like I should identify with it. But the way people respond to a lot of her work, it's almost as if it's like glamorizing the life. So I think that while I was watching it, I was thinking a lot about 
kind of the works of Antonioni, which mm-hmm. deal with that kind of malaise and rich people as well. Well, it's like a rich person malaise and fuck upness as lifestyle choice and as aesthetic. Mm-hmm. So people watch girls or they watch this movie and it's like, oh, that's just like me. And that comforts me because it makes it makes my fucked up look cool. Do you, you know what I mean? I think that if the movie didn't have the kind of critical reception in Girls 2... That if it lived in a bubble, if you stumbled upon this, would you have a different reaction to it? I think well, I think I would have just forgotten it. Yeah, for, for, I don't like, think I would have probably watched it. I mean, there it. aren't any characters in it who I think are interesting and they don't do anything interesting. But I think of somebody like Kazakh Radwanski, mm-hmm. who also has made movies about young fuck-ups. And, but he's also dealing in a much lower class. Yeah, but also like you watch a movie like Tower and the guy in it, like he's a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. And you can identify with him and you can empathize with him, but he's also a piece of shit. Whereas Hannah Horvath or the person in this movie, tiny furniture, like she's, you're supposed to actually like her. That's the problem that I found with it is that while she's fucked up and she's making all these bad decisions, Lena Dunham wants you to like her and for you to go, oh, I understand why she would make that decision. And and you watch it and you're like, well, I've made decisions like that. Isn't that isn't that cool that I have a kinship with this person? And doesn't that... It's almost like self-justification at some mm. point. Like everybody like, does actually, it. Yeah, everybody does it. All my bad decisions are part of my cool aesthetic. And, and I find that very bad. And I mean, this is a film that one of the running gags is that uh, Lena Dunham is looking for something in a white drawer. And guess what? They're so rich, they have a wall of white drawers. Yeah. Ugh, terrible. So, I mean, I don't know. I think Girls, the first season of it. Which, which, which there's a really great story on the last episode yeah. about Will having to be forced to watch the first two episodes three times. But I mean, I also don't like Girls, but I mean, I think it's better than this movie. It, it, like, just, like, it just stylistically makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't make sense for the movie to look like this, this like 2.35 to 1 scope ratio with all this vast empty space. But I heard that it evolved in a different direction than people would expect. And that when you get to spend time with these characters for that long like different sides of them are revealed right uh, it's not like tiny furniture which just gives you this person is fucked up just like you so mm-hmm. it's okay and feel sympathy for them okay i i believe it we also watched another film that was released on dvd but has since gone out of print at the criterion collection which is the harder they come that was a film directed by perry hensel and starred a famous reggae performer jimmy clift which is a black exploitation film that has a distinction of being shot in jamaica and that all the actors are speaking a patois that's a little bit difficult to understand which led one distributor to say that it's the first english language film that has to be shown with subtitles in the theaters i watched it with subtitles <laughs> uh, it's kind of like half black exploitation half jamaican neorealism mm-hmm. because it's it has you know, to use an overused phrase, a documentary-like realism in the way that it shows kind of lower working class life in Jamaica and kind of the bustling energy of the streets there. It's also kind of the first notable Jamaican film. And honestly, it's one of the only Jamaican films I can name. Yeah, um, off the top of my head. It, it had kind of a famous story where it played at the Venice Film Festival, not in competition, of course, but like the distributors kind of arranged some underground screenings there and a few people caught it. And then all of a sudden it 
word of mouth took off. And well, it was also kind of propelled by the fact that the soundtrack was very, very popular. Yeah, this was, I think, the movie that broke reggae into the mainstream in America. Mm. So Roger Corman, New World Pictures, released it. Wasn't a big hit, but then it became a midnight movie for the rest of the 70s. And the film is sloppy. <laughs> yes. Uh, has great music. Yes. Turns into a weird gangster film for the last 40 minutes. This is a movie that, you know, I kind of liked it. Um, I felt like I should have liked it more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I It's one of those movies where you kind of admire the moxie of it and the energy of it more than the actual thing. Well, it's such a cultural object at this point, right? Yeah. That it's kind of fascinating to go and watch it and to be let into this world, which you never experience anywhere else. Even though that its director, Perry Hensel, is a white guy. Oh, really? I yes. didn't know that. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, yeah, the music is great. It, it has several songs that, like, I was actually surprised came from the movie. Like, mm-hmm. you can get it if you really want it. I, I don't know if if the plot really works. Because it turns... No. Like, it starts, again, as this kind of, like... Kitchen, Rags to riches. Kitchen sink realism. And then it turns into a gangster movie. So, I mean, I wanted to like it more than I did. And just kind of spins at wheels, too, because... Uh, basically the main character goes insane and starts just shooting anybody that gets in his way. But, I mean, one thing I'll say about it is, in terms of its place in the Criterion Collection, um, it's one of the rare black movies that's in the Criterion Collection. Now, they've put out Do the Right Thing. They just recently put out Usman Semben's very great film, Black Girl, mm-hmm. um, which is one of their rare African releases. I think the Martin Scorsese World Cinema box sets have had maybe a couple of African films. Yeah, the uh, first one does. And, you know, I'm sure, like, there's the Paul Robeson box set, although I don't know if you can really call all those movies black films. Some of them are Hollywood films. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, aside from that, I'm sure people, you know, might correct me with other examples, but there's not a lot. Yeah, well, Criterion has a tendency of kind of focusing on the things that sell, right? Yeah. Like, And the stuff that is canonical. Yeah, so Japanese films... There's money to be made there. Kurosawa, Ozu, like those are sure bets. Mm. Hong Kong cinema or China, not so much. Well, we'll get to that when we talk about our um, uh, ideal releases. Well, we watched a third film that was released on Criterion. It was my pick because I was like, hey, let's have some fun with something. Had you ever seen it before? No, I had not. I would not sit with you and watch (laughs) it again if I had seen it before. We watched this one together, yeah. And that was Dennis Muren's Equinox. Which was, I think, made in 1968 and then released in 1970 with some additional footage shot by James Harris. It's a low budget, very low budget. How much did it cost? Like $6,500? Monster movie made by a bunch of monster kids. Notable for the fact that a bunch of um, very famous special effects people, including Dennis Murin, who would go on to win something like nine Academy Awards. And did some of the most important special effects ever. So like Terminator 2, Empire Strikes Back, Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. Wasn't he, didn't he almost single-handedly create CGI? CGI, yeah. Because on Jurassic Park, they were going to utilize Go Motion, which is a version of stop motion animation for the dinosaurs. And uh, Dennis Murin is the one who steered them towards CGI. Even though that if you do watch Jurassic Park, it has great CGI. Lots of animatronics as well. Mm. And uh, Equinox also was a film that uh, Mark Thomas McGee, who became a critical scholar of like AIP and Roger Corman, will go on to write a bunch of Fred and Ray films. Dave Allen, who was the stop motion guy in Hollywood for a bunch of uh, time. He worked a lot for Charles Van, did a bunch of the Puppet Master films. So this is a caliber of talent 
that I'm like, well, this is going to be fun. And we also wanted to do this one because Criterion being a canonical company, an exclusionary company, it doesn't have a lot of exploitation films in it. No. And the ones it does have are stuff like Carnival of Souls and Cat People, stuff that has been uh, uh, approved by time. That's right. <laughs> yes. So Equinox is bad. Yeah. Like, it's bad. It's like I was watching it baffled as to how this why they picked this one up because it's not like I would compare it to something like it has stop motion and Dennis Murren also made Flash Gordon. He did the stop motion in that movie and Flash Gordon is better than this. (laughs) That's right. Uh, And that being the Flash Gordon uh, porn parody. Like the non stop motion scenes are kind of like this movie made me realize there's a certain category of movies, which are monster movies from the early seventies that should have been made 20 years earlier. Yeah, Cause they're made by monster kids who love those fifties movies. And so like this movie is about on par with a movie like the mighty Gorga. If you've (laughs) ever seen that. (laughs) And Equinox is also famous for, inspiring the evil dead because equinox is also about a cabin in the woods which is destroyed by the time they get to it and a book of the dead which is um discussed as smelling like rotten eggs aka sulfur so you got these four teenagers all <laughs> 40 year olds they all look in their 40s uh who are uh, going out for for some fun and some adventure and in the woods and they see a castle <laughs> which I don't think ever comes into play. No. Well, when we saw it and it was like a map painting in the distance, I went, they're never going to get to that castle. <laughs> Uh, so instead they go into a cave, which looks a bit like Romance Cave from Robot Monster. And, uh, where they find a giggling old man in a plaid shirt yeah. who hands them an evil book. And they read the book and all Slowly. of the, their line delivery is stilted. Like, boy, this book sure looks like it has some, uh, ghouls and goblins in it. Like, that's the caliber of dialogue. And me and Will are just sitting there waiting for those stop motion creatures to show up. And the copy we had broke before <laughs> they could show up. And we were like, what the hell? So then we watched a really bad YouTube version of it. It was the only way we could watch it. It was like watching a film back in 1999. Yeah, it it reminded me of like when I used to watch movies in undergrad on like shitty DVD rips, except (laughs) not even that good. Like when people would step in the frame, like their faces were gone. (laughs) Just pixels dancing on screen. But listen, I got the point. Yeah, because eventually some monsters show up. You get a King Kong ripoff kind of guy who gets taken down by a measly little stick. And, you know, that's that's cool. fun. I'm always up for stop motion, but like, you know what movie also has stop motion? Laser Blast. And it's it's bad. Guess who did the stop motion on Laser Blast? Dave Allen, who uh, did Equinox. Well, there you go. Like, I actually think Laser Blast is maybe a better film than I this. I think what Laser Blast has that this movie doesn't have is the D's. Eddie yeah, Deason. Eddie Deason, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you see these 40-year-old teenagers kind of wander around. The second monster they run into is just a guy in a caveman suit that's green, blown up through a forced perspective. Boo! He looks like Lou Ferrigno in The Incredible Hulk. <laughs> yeah, and finally they get to meet this cool uh, demon monster. Too little too late. So, a long movie... It's 82 minutes, but it felt long. <laughs> but I did look at the extras after, and it looks kind of fun. All, yeah, uh, they're packed. I believe there's like commentaries and interviews and stuff like that. So maybe that's fun. Too bad it's for that movie. You <laughs> you watched a fourth movie that I didn't watch. Yeah. Because I, I just thought, yeah, you know, I need some time <laughs> on this weekend to have fun. <laughs> yeah, I watched Fist in the Pocket, which is a film that was directed by Marco Bellicchio, who's still mm. working to this day. Mm. He had a film in TIFF a few years ago. And I wanted to watch it because 
it's kind of that perfect example of the European, in this case, Italian art film mm. about a dysfunctional family that plays like a proto version of Dogtooth, mm. where they're all screwed up. And what ends up happening is the plot is about one of the sons that decides to murder the rest of his family so his brother can go live alone. And I wanted to watch it just because it's an example of a film that was very critically lauded when it came out. I remember reading a very positive Pauline Kale. Uh, review that's in one of her books which is what got my attention to it and Criterion released it it went out of print on DVD and has been forgotten to the sands of time Mm. which kind of proves that Criterion as a releasing company is not infallible because you know they'll release a film and it will disappear from their lineup because rights cost money and you can't keep it in print forever like one of my favorites it's always the spine number though the spine number is still there like last year in Marion Bad is not in print anymore on Blu-ray or DVD. Also, uh, well, many movies are like that, like Chunking Express, The Third Man. Mm-hmm. For a long time, Sallow was the uh, most sought-after DVD. Really? Like, the, the original release, it would go for hundreds of dollars on eBay. <laughs> I mean, that's the collector mentality, right? Yeah. Which I don't personally have, and I, you... Not really. Not really. Yeah. But we should talk about our favorite uh, Criterion releases, other than the ones we've mentioned. I mean, I've mentioned Brazil, like that. That, that would be on my list, yeah. One of that doesn't get talked about enough for me is Walker, which is directed by Alex Cox, the guy who did Repo Man, and it was his big budget attempt at kind of a crazy spaghetti western art film about a famous figure that went and conquered a country, an American figure, and thought he was a good guy, and it just goes to shit. And the film itself starts like a period piece, and slowly as it goes along, it does what Anthony Hopkins' version of Titus does, which it introduces modern day elements like helicopters and tanks mm. and stuff like that start to appear, and. That release has an interesting feature, which is Alex Cox reading the bad reviews for his films on camera. Uh, Do the Right Thing has uh, an extra where Spike Lee reads from some of the reviews where uh, he reads a review that worries that Do the Right Thing is going to be an incitement to violence. And he he goes, uh, one wonders what audiences, black or white, will make of it. Then he looks at the camera and goes, see, black or white? That's him trying to cover his ass. (laughs) Uh, I think uh, uh, one of the best releases is Mr. Arcaden. Uh, I love that release. Which is not a particularly good Orson Welles movie, but it's one that exists in many different versions, and uh, none of them is definitive. But this one picks two of the most common versions, and then they it creates a third version with kind of all the extant footage edited as closely as possible to Welles' wishes. It also comes with the novelization which was ostensibly written by Wells, but probably wasn't, and a lot of contextualizing extras. Uh, You know, I like a release like that that not only kind of brings a mostly forgotten movie back, you know, into public consciousness, but also sort of draws attention to the uh, vagaries of distribution and filmmaking. Criterion has been knocking it out of the park in the last few years. I guess they made like a sweetheart deal with all these Wells films finally getting the definitive Mm -hmm. versions. Like Chimes at Midnight had not had a proper release ever. And now you could just walk into a store and buy the Criterion version. F for Fake has a long documentary on it about Wells' uncompleted projects that has big, long clips from The Merchant of Venice and The Other Side of the Wind, uh, which, I mean, it's the documentary itself isn't great, but the chance to see those clips is pretty amazing. Well, you were talking about films that didn't get a chance to be seen. Um, America Lost and Found, the BBS story, which was a box set the Criterion put out, I found it endlessly fascinating, even though I don't own it because it's too expensive. I own it. 
But, <laughs> you know, it's all about the snobs versus slobs. <laughs> it's that the fact that they go into the way these movies were made and the box set has some famous films. It has Easy Rider on it, but it also has The Monkey's Head and yeah. it has uh, Henry Jaglum's first film. Well, that, that box set is great because it has certain films in it like Five Easy Pieces and The Last Picture Show that you men- know you know, and, and you might watch, but it's interesting to see all these films like closely together in conversation with each other and consider the context from which they emerged and the fact that I mean like Jack Nicholson is probably in like three or four of them and mm-hmm. you can imagine this little it's com- like a world the yeah. community yeah. that made these films and that's a box set that allows you to see that in fact Jack Nicholson's directorial debut Drive uh, he said is on there and it's not very good no but you know it's nice to see it yeah. in that context yeah another release that I think is very good is In the Mood for Love by Wong Kar Wai because that's one where in the extras it documents his way of working Wong Kar Wai often shoots a film without a script he's been known for to shoot a film for a year two years just accumulating footage and making it work in the editing room and that one has scenes from earlier versions of In the Mood for Love it started as an anthology film about food and you see like cute romantic comedy clips of Maggie Chung and Tony Lung like eating food together and like dancing and it would have been a completely different film I can't remember if he shot a scene I I think he did shoot a scene I can't remember if it's on there of the Tony Lung and Maggie Chung characters fucking (laughs) yeah like not on screen but a scene that implied that they consummated their relationship yes uh but it, it shows you, it's an insight into his way of working. Uh, I really love the Jacques Demy box set. Jacques Demy is not much of a household name, but he does have two famous films, which is The Umbrellas of Cherbourg and uh, Les Filles de Rochefort, The Young Girls of Rochefort, That's I right. guess they would That's be right. in English. And this box set puts a bunch of his like lesser known films along with it, like uh, Donkey Skin, which is like a weird fable with crazy color cinematography. And it, I love that because it gives you these films that have not been properly released in America like uh, Umbrella of Cherbourg but also gives you these other minor films that are presented just as well as the big famous classic ones Island of Lost Souls the early uh, sound horror film with Charles Lawton and Bela Lugosi based on the island of Dr. Moreau that's one where Criterion did an extensive restoration on it it was one of those movies that had been censored so often by so many local censor boards and I'm not even sure if the original negative existed anymore but it was a restoration that took years um, and so it was a valuable contribution to film history I mean another valuable contribution to film history is King of the Hill uh, Steven Soto Mm -hmm. which is a forgotten one but i think probably the most interesting part of this dvd release is that they included his next film as well which was the underneath which was a remake of a classic noir film and it's interesting because steven soderbergh does like a 15 minute intro before the film where he talks about why the film failed and how he failed the movie Mm. and why it's so bad. Mm. And at the same time, you get King of the Hill, which is like a forgotten period piece. I might point to the DVD release of Hard Boiled, the, the John Woo film, which was one of the first DVD releases. It's one that I wouldn't necessarily recommend. It's out. It's long out of print. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it if you wanted to watch Hard Boiled because the image quality is pretty dated mm-hmm. uh, and there are better Blu-ray releases of it. But I like the package as a time capsule of 
Hong Kong cinema just on the cusp of the 1997 handover um, and kind of what John Woo's status was at the time. There's this great commentary track that has Roger Avery and Mm. Terrence Chang, the producer, Terrence Chang, and also Dave Kerr, the critic, which is a very well edited commentary uh, and captures something of that, you know, pre nine, I almost said pre nine 11, pre 1997 anxiety. (laughs) Also, it has a trailer show with 12 or 13 John Woo trailers from his journeyman years when Mm -hmm. he was doing Chinese operas and comedies and to hell with the devil, to hell with the devil uh, with, it has little text, explanations of them and it really contextualizes his career doesn't that have that crazy short film that john woo made in uh college yes, as well it does you you'd see it and it, you it's not what you think a john woo short film would be mm-hmm. i have tons more i could recommend but i just want to end with something that was recently released which i really appreciate which is the martin scorsese's world cinema project box sets which we mentioned briefly before which are these like massive hundred dollar plus box sets that have brand new transfers of movies from around the world that have never had proper releases. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important because, you know, people will buy it because they slap Mark Scorsese's name on it, but at the same time, they're going to be able to experience the cinema that they otherwise would have never, ever seen. You can travel the world from the comfort of your (laughs) own living room. But we should talk about what films do you want to see on the Criterion label? One of the legacies of Criterion is its influence on shaping the canon. When you look at the last Sight and Sound poll, every 10 years, Sight and Sound does a poll of critics and academics of what are the 10 best movies of all time. When you look at the last list, the top 50 votes, it's amazing to see how many of them Criterion put out and how many of them were really brought to attention by Criterion. A movie like F for Fake, for instance, I feel like had been semi-forgotten and then their uh, release minor wells it yeah, was considered but their release put it back on the list uh you know jean dealman or something like that mm-hmm. uh they've been enormously influential so there are certain movies that i'd like to see that would be nice to see criterion put out simply for a chance into the canon criterion has been pretty neglectful of hong kong cinema yeah uh whether because they uh, maybe it's rights issues who knows it, it, it could be anything but it's something that uh, it would be nice to see a bigger presence. Uh, there's no more quintessential Hong Kong director than Choi Hawk. And uh, one of his most interesting movies is his third film, I believe. Yep. Or Dangerous Encounter First Kind, which is his, uh, you know, very angry, nihilistic film about troubled Hong Kong youth and uh, who kind of resort to terrorism for fun. Yeah. And we we talked about it on our Choi Hawk episode. That's one where it was heavily censored by Hong Kong censors for its first release. And so it exists in two versions, one of which is the release version. And one has scenes from a VHS version. Yeah, that Choi Hawk found it in his closet. Yeah. So what ended up happening was uh, Dangerous Encounter of the First Kind was put out by a company run by Christopher Gott, the director of Brotherhood of the Wolf (laughs) in France called HK Video. And they made a beautiful box set long out of print. I think it goes for like $300 now called the Chaos Trilogy, which has True Heart's first three films, Mm -hmm. including Dangerous Encounters of the First Kind, which like you were saying, I think is a masterpiece. And the fact that it doesn't have a DVD release in North America is crazy. It's it's an important film and people should know about it. And it's exactly the kind of movie that the Criterion Collection could bring to attention. attention. Another one that I would like to see get a little more legitimacy and a movie that's not on high def in any format right now is The Ladies' Man by Jerry Lewis, which I I don't think you're a huge fan of, but I just... I appreciate it for what it is. Would I buy the Criterion? 
Maybe. Well, I just revisited it, and I think it's uh, kind of an amazing film. It's it's just so off the wall, and it's so inventive, and it's such a visual masterpiece. And it captures, as Jerry Lewis as a performer, at something near his peak. And I think, you know, the first five films Jerry Lewis directed are kind of interesting formal experiments and deserve to be canonized in some form. And also just feels a shame that a movie as visually rich as the ladies man doesn't have a blu-ray release yeah exactly i mean criterion here it is me and will we do a commentary for the ladies man i will be interviewing will because i don't have that much to say about jerry lewis (laughs) and you put it in a box set with a reprinted version of jerry lewis's the total filmmaker and you call it the important cinema club presents (laughs) we're like the martin scorsese you know i'm not i'm not looking at movies that have uh, great HD releases because you know the, so, somebody out like there. yeah somebody like Buster Keaton sure it'd be great to see Criterion's name slapped on it but Kino is doing great things with Buster Keaton and he doesn't need the legitimacy no yeah he doesn't so there's been a lot of talk lately about Elaine May she's kind of come back into favor and one of her films that I don't one of our least listened to episodes oh really well yeah. one of her films that is unavailable right now but is a masterpiece is the heartbreak kid not to be confused with the Fairley brothers film which is a remake of her film but it's given that there's been so much talk about elaine may recently there's been so much talk about female directors uh and this is a great movie and it's better than the graduate which is a movie criterion has released and which it's often been compared to the trial by orson wells doesn't have an hd release seems like a natural for criterion Mm. finally a filmmaker who i think has been ill served by home video in general is mr edgar g elmer Mm -hmm. an obsession of mine the poet of poverty row a detour there's probably a multitude of reasons why that hasn't happened yet it could be the fact that no negative exists Mm -hmm. or even any good print to allow um a a company to release a good version rights could be all over the place i know detour was owned by a guy who released it Uh, privately at one point. Wade Williams, who's kind of an eccentric film collector. Mm. Maybe Edgar G. Elmer is the kind of filmmaker who would be better served by Kino, but because he's a filmmaker who his greatness kind of resides in small moments across his body of work, my dream home video release would be like a 10 disc of the complete films of Edgar G. Elmer. The complete films? Or, you know, as complete as possible where it gathers all the material there. I mean, there has been box sets. Yeah, but he's a hard director to kind of get a handle on. Again, because, you know, the masterpieces are kind of scattered Now, would you take an Eclipse box set or do you want like a proper Criterion box set? Well, since we're fantasizing, why not dream big? Yeah, (laughs) I like the Eclipse films, but the thing about the Eclipse film is that because they are such like off the beaten past pictures, I just like wish I had more context for them. Yeah, they're DVDs too. Come yeah, on. they are. I didn't know we were going to do the uh, films we want to see on the Criterion Collection, so I just got to go for my number one, Evil Dead 2. Sure, <laughs> why not? No, what are you kidding? There's been a hundred versions of Evil Dead 2. The Blu-ray that was released recently is more than good enough. There's a 90 minute documentary on it. Sure. Like we talked about before, it's tough for me to think of any film I want to see on Criterion because there's so many distributors right now releasing films. Well, I think Arrow Video is frankly, in many ways, a more interesting company because they're doing slightly more off-kilter titles and they're doing editions that are equally as lavish as anything Criterion does. That new Jacques Rivette box set that is super lavish and has like three or four of his films. And they're putting out all of Jean-Luc Godard's Maoist films that he made with uh, Jean-Pierre Gorin, which, I mean, you know, say what you will about them, but it's it's, it's great to have them in one place yeah, in f- the best edition. Finally, contextualized. Or, you know, Arrow put out stuff like 
Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia by Sam Peckinpah, or they're putting out A Fish Called Wanda, for instance. Would these movies be released by Criterion? I don't know. uh, Like today? Probably not. But maybe back in the day on DVD, sure. So, I mean, you know, we don't need Criterion necessarily to put for, for... for a good DVD release. Yeah, whatever. but we'd like them if they took the films that we like and released them. <laughs> well, because again, it comes down to the legitimacy. Them yeah. putting out the movie you like means it's a great movie. <laughs> All right. So this week we did a super duper bonus episode of the Important Cinema Club for our Patreon. We talked about special features on DVDs and Blu-rays. God, so if you're not exhausted <laughs> li- listening to this. And you're like... I want to know where I can spend thousands and thousands of dollars to see the three-hour making of on Piranha 3D. <laughs> then you want to listen to this episode. We go through all the legitimate releases we love, all our favorite commentary tracks, our favorite commentators, our favorite documentaries, even the weirdest special features we've ever seen. It's the longest episode we've done for Patreon yet. Get a front row seat to two wasted lives. <laughs> it's $5 a month and you get that episode and the other three we release per month do we have any letters this week yes we do have a letter from oh my what a guy previous important cinema club uh podcast letter writer he goes regarding your talk on top 100 lists i am a huge horror movie fan but every time i do a checklist on the best horror films cannibal holocaust always makes an appearance I have made an attempt to watch it, but I have turned it off in disgust after the first animal dies. Should I force myself to watch it? It feels like the only value it would have to me is to check it off a list. I am not a vegetarian nor animal rights person. I have watched other movies with animal deaths like Wake and Fright and Apocalypse Now, and I haven't had a problem with them. Uh, you do not have to watch Cannibal Holocaust. Life is short, who cares? Yeah, exactly. There is an animal-free version on the Grindhouse releasing Blu-ray release and DVD, but if you feel already that you don't want to see this movie, you don't need to watch it. My feeling is that if you're gonna watch Cannibal Holocaust, the first time you watch it, like, you should watch the animal cruelty version simply because, like, that's the game. Yeah. Like if the, you're going to watch it, you watch the, it uncut. Like the movie is an endurance test. That's the point of it. And then after that, after you've like proven that you're a man by, <laughs> by, <laughs> by, by watching Important it. Cinema Club does not endorse Will Sloan's opinion. <laughs> uh, uh, th- then you can watch the animal cruelty free version, but also like, you know, uh, no one will can- think you're cool. Because you checked off the thousand one movies to see you before you die. Yeah. Like, they don't care. Yeah. Like, no one will be like, oh, wow, you're a better person. Read a book. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Questions, comments, whatever you want. Relationship advice. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure we could give that. I am in a stable relationship. Will is a Lothario on the field looking for love. (laughs) So we can give you his tips on that. Next week, speaking of Cannibal Holocaust, we're going to be doing something that Will suggested. Mondo movies or shockumentaries. This is a form of film that was uh, popular somewhat in the 60s because of a movie called Mondo Cane an Italian documentary about strange customs from around the world directed by uh, two guys named Jacopetti and Prosperi. They later created this sort of franchise around these uh, weird lurid documentaries, which would, it would show like, you know, people eating animals yeah. uh, in, in weird countries or monks lighting themselves on fire or whatever. And their most famous, 
famous for being movies that would document people dying. And uh, they are very racist. Yes, they are. So we're going to be watching, uh, and and later this genre would morph into shockumentaries. Like Faces of Death and stuff like that. Yeah, so we're going to be watching Mondo Kane, the one that started it all. Africa Audio, which is probably Jacopetti and Prosperi's one of their most notorious and ambitious films, and also a later example of the genre, a shockumentary called The Killing of America. Directed by Paul Schrader's brother, Leonard Schrader. Yes, and a very depressing film about gun violence. I'm sure we'll address Faces of Death and Goodbye Uncle Tom and some mm-hmm. of the other notable examples. And I'll say off the top, it's not a subgenre of film that has ever interested me, but I'm jumping feet first. Because I'm dedicated to you, Will. Because you made me do Ridley Scott, so now, <laughs> now I'm making you do Mondo movies. <laughs> if you don't like Mondo movies, listen to it as well, because then you don't have to watch them. Mondo movies are interesting. <laughs> All right, my name's Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. You know, it's always fun when you put a movie on and you go, this is just going to kill some time, and you find a masterpiece before your eyes, which happened for me and Will. I said, oh, I got a Kung Fu Zombie here. Why don't we put that on? Turns out Kung Fu Zombie, way better than Equinox, (laughs) and probably made Equinox worse. (laughs) So Kung Fu Zombie was uh, on a eight-movie pack that was released by Mill Creek Entertainment, I believe. Uh, is it like Kung Fu from Beyond the Grave or something like that? Yeah, and it has a bunch of like kind of horror and zombie-themed uh, Kung Fu movies, including We're Going to Eat You by Choi Hawk. And I remember Will, when he saw the advertising for it, he said, should I buy this? And I went, well, it's on two DVDs and it's like eight films. That's a lot of uh, films. But for- it was like $10 on Amazon, so I thought, worth the risk. Mm-hmm. And when you got it, it said anamorphic widescreen on all of them, and by that they mean usually like a cropped scope picture that they could fit on a 16 by 19 <laughs> yeah and uh, kung fu zombie i remember reading about it a lot when i was a kid because it was in all these cult movie books principally for the fact that it's called kung fu zombie and i remember nothing other than that other than i think it was a movie uh, other than a review on badmovies.org oh god yeah i used to spend a lot of time there <laughs> watching the clips and stuff yeah, like that yeah that um was pissed that it had no zombies in it. It has some... Does it have hopping vampires? It has hopping yeah, vampires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and like kung fu corpses. Yeah, like it, it uh, transgresses the boundary between life and death for sure. But it stars Billy Chong, who was kind of a Jackie Chan clone. Mm-hmm. Who never quite never quite made it. Um, but this movie, you know, it's a movie uh, of, of moments. Uh, yeah. Such as a moment where a guy literally spins another guy <laughs> around. Uh, a moment where a guy stabs a guy in the head ten times. <laughs> yep. A moment where a guy's head gets knocked off and this reincarnated kung fu warrior who has no shirt but a cape bites his neck and a geyser of blood shoots up in the air. This probably sounds horrible, but it's also cartoonish. Yes, like really cartoonish. The thing about this movie is that it's directed with the editing style of Edgar Wright, or as Will pointed out while we were watching it, sometimes it's edited so quickly it's like you're seeing a comic book panel really fast before it goes to something else. And the the fight scenes are like so quickly edited that it's like it's like one ridiculous thing after another and you don't even have time to process them all. (laughs) So all you can do is just like laugh because that's the only release. And it's also in that kind of subgenre. I don't know what I would call it, but it's like the cheap Kung Fu film that mostly takes place in fields. Yeah. (laughs)
And we were thinking, what great filmmaker unleashed this masterpiece? We checked his IMDb, and of course, it was the director of Inframan. Ooh, great Shaw Brothers Ultraman ripoff. The, the greatest Hong Kong giant monster movie of all time, and also one of our favorite Bruce Bloitation movies, Soul Brothers of Kung Fu. Like, we talked about it a little bit, I think, on the Bruce Bloitation podcast we did, but that movie is great. Yeah, it's a, it's a very depressing uh, kind of like, it's Bruce Lai, the Bruce Lee clone. The best of Bruce Lee clones. Yeah, he, he's starts in it as a guy who becomes a famous fighter but then uh the mob kills his girlfriend and then he goes on a mission with carl scott yeah and just an african-american martial artist that movie also brutally violent (laughs) yes Uh, and that movie just like kung fu zombie has almost no downtime yeah (laughs) like i mean kung fu zombie does stuff where you're gonna spend 15 minutes with like the underlings of the boss but it's still fun like kung fu zombie the plot is about I don't know what it's about. (laughs) The plot of Kung Fu Zombie is about the hero kills a bad guy and that bad guy's ghost gets a uh, priest to reincarnate him in different bodies, which leads to a bunch of funny ghost jokes where like a hat representing the dead guy floats around laughing and stuff like that. Yeah. And in the final fight scene, there are like two or three characters who we've spent the movie knowing who just like get off instantly and brutally (laughs) and with no fanfare. And it also finishes off with a scene that me and Will were baffled because we were like, isn't the movie over? But I guess it was just a chance to drop Morricone's Exorcist 2 lead song (laughs) where Will went, wait, do I know that music? And I went, huh? I know it too. Yeah, of course I do. Because I edited it for the Laser Blast Film Society video that we show before every screening. Yes. Uh, We should point out Kung Fu Zombie also has a bunch of recognizable music tracks. Oh, yeah. Um, I I can't, I'm not even sure where they're from, but it's just like the music that you hear in every Kung Fu movie. Well, don't forget, uh, a little bit of James Bond makes an appearance. Oh, that's that's true. The James Bond, one of the villains of the movie, every time he shows up, the music goes, da-na-na, da-na-na. (laughs) but it's like a slightly off key version it's like yeah it's like the the minor key version (laughs) of it but you also saw another movie that was very important for you will in the cinema it's world premiere right i I went to the italian canadian film festival to see the neighborhood by uh the paisano himself frank d'angelo have we talked about frank d'angelo on this podcast uh we haven't and uh frank d'angelo is a toronto beverage mogul cheetah energy drink and everything he's related to arnold palmer as well yeah and uh, he, in his middle age, decided that he wanted to be a movie star. So with the funds from this pharmaceutical billionaire he knows, he makes these kind of Scorsese ripoff movies where he stars and it's surrounded by all sorts of slightly faded stars that he's able to get for a budget. So this one has Daniel Baldwin, Michael Pere, Franco Nero. Franco Nero's in it, and he's pretty good, actually. Mm-hmm. He's always good. Um, Art Hindle is in it for a scene, Margot Kidder. He has kind of like an Altman-esque repertory who show show up in movie after movie. Faded stars that like being paid in cash. And I got to tell you, after the uh, comparative competence of Sicilian Vampire and Red Maple Leaf, which were both also terrible films, but which were a certain step forward for him, this one... Maybe his worst movie yet. Oh, no, I hate to hear that. It Will. takes about an hour for it to, for the plot to kick in, and then it's just it's just one of those movies where like there are a dozen too many characters and nothing pays off. And also, 
much is made of the fact that it's set in the neighborhood, but we never get any sense of geographically, spiritually, what this neighborhood is. And it's the kind of movie where it's filmed in Hamilton, but there'll be a shot of Frank riding on his motorcycle, and then it'll cut to Times Square. And then it'll <laughs> it's cut about back setting to... space, Will. Yeah. I mean, but you're a Frank you know, expert. I would say the Frank Scholar in the world today. But he did start with some movies that if people want to go check out his oeuvre that uh, are a little bit more pleasing. No deposit. Yes. Go which on was covered iTunes. by uh, the Flophouse podcast. And they was, did an episode. And it was just on Eric Roberts' The Fucking Man this week. Go on iTunes. Watch No Deposit. It's about 80 minutes long. It's the best bad movie of the decade. It's very, very good. And it's a shame that it's not better known. It's super funny. Yes, it is. It's right up there. It's like Neil Breen and Tommy Wiseau. And just read a little bit about Frank before so you have some context for who he is. Maybe read his biography, which is called Uh, Being Frank, the Inspiring Story of Frank D'Angelo. And never forget the immortal line that... uh, I'm shocked that Will doesn't have this tattooed on his body that Frank D'Angelo himself says. It's nice to be great, but it's great to be nice. (laughs) 